Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. It will greatly help you to have your Bible on your lap, open to the passage as you follow along the sermon this morning. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have paperback Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to page 567. That's where our text appears this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Before we get into that, let me mention just a couple of things. Next week, we are having our annual missions conference, so we're really looking forward to that, and we encourage and exhort you all to make time to come and learn about missions and learn about the missionaries that this church is supporting. So it begins Friday night at 6 o'clock. We'll have a dinner served, uh, a number of activities going on, including a report from uh, Matt and Jesta. Matt and Jesta Jesh, right? Did I get that name right? I think that's right. Uh, they'll be here talking to us. And I'll also be telling a little bit about Mary's and my trip to Malaysia from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so that's Friday night. Again, dinner served. Would love to have you. And the conference continues Sunday morning at 9 o'clock during the Sunday school hour. Uh, we'll be hearing more about our missionaries and praying for them. And then during the service next Sunday, it will be missions Sunday. So uh, tell people about it. Come and join us Friday night and Sunday morning next weekend. Also, <clears throat> we have a newly formed security team here at the church, and so we're very grateful for the work these individuals are doing. And they're looking for anybody with CPR training who might be able to serve as a resource for us as a church in case of an emergency when we're here together. So if you are trained in CPR, Julia Jordan would love to speak with you after the service, and uh, she will be back near the tech booth right after the service. And so where is Julia? Can you raise your hand so people know who you are? Okay, there's Julia right there in the middle. Uh, If you have CPR training, see her after the service. Thanks for your attention to that, and thanks, security team, for all the work that you're doing. Well... About 10 years ago, Time Magazine came out with this cover story, 10 Ideas That Are Changing the World. And I was shocked to see what number three was on this list. 10 Ideas Changing the World, and number three was the new Calvinism. Now, you might not know what Calvinism is, and if you don't, that's okay. Don't worry too much about it. But Calvinism is a a particular um, theological viewpoint that puts a very strong emphasis on predestination. And here in Time Magazine, a totally secular magazine, they're saying that this particular theological viewpoint is changing the world. (laughs) I mean, that's just not something you would expect to see from a secular publication like that. Predestination, this particular doctrine, changing the world. What do I mean when I say this, this term, predestination? Other words that can be used for it are the doctrine of election, or maybe a simpler way to put it is to think of the sovereignty of God in choosing those whom he will save. That's what we mean when we talk about 
predestination. Now, some of you out there right now might be getting a little nervous because the doctrine of predestination is rather controversial. Not all Christians agree on what we mean by predestination. This doctrine can tend to rub some people the wrong way, and I just want you to know that is not my intent this morning. Um, and there is room here at New Life for disagreement on this issue if what you hear this morning is not in line with what you've been taught or with what you agree with. That's okay, all right? There's still a place for you here at New Life. Um, but from time to time, it's, it's good that we talk about this doctrine because the Bible actually speaks a lot about it. Doesn't always use the term predestination, but as I just said, sometimes it's the word election. Very often you'll see the act of God making sovereign choices. If you think of predestination in those three terms, you see it repeatedly throughout scripture. It's also a distinctive of our particular theological viewpoint as Presbyterians. So if there's one place you should hear about the doctrine of predestination, it should be in a Presbyterian church. Uh, but in addition to that, Time Magazine is saying this doctrine is changing the world. <laughs> and we're Christians who believe in the Bible where this doctrine comes from. We ought to know something about it, right? So we're going to take some time this morning to think about this doctrine as it is taught in the book of Ephesians. So we are still going through our Route 66 sermon series um, for, I don't know, a year and a quarter now. I think we've been going through this. We started in Genesis and we've been doing one sermon per Bible book, moving our way through the entire Bible. We're in the letters of Paul. We were in Galatians last week, Ephesians this week. Ephesians written by Paul around 62 AD. Uh, themes in the book of Ephesians, the gospel of grace, the unity of the church, chapter five, very interesting treatise on marriage, and then chapter six, spiritual warfare. But it's in chapter one, actually, at the very beginning of this great book, this great letter, that Paul gives some attention to this doctrine of predestination. So all we're going to do is read verses three through six in chapter one, in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 11 as well. So if you'd please stand for the reading of God's word, I'll, I'll read these verses. And my encouragement is let's just seek to submit ourselves to what God is saying to us here in the scriptures about his sovereignty in his grace toward us. Ephesians 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Holy Spirit, 
We believe that you are the one who moved in Paul to write these words. And now, Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes to understand it. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, let's start very simply with this, explaining predestination. I'm going to take some time to seek to explain to you what this doctrine means as we have found it here in the book of Ephesians. The book of Romans also, uh, chapters 8 and 9, spend a lot of time on this doctrine. But next to that portion of scripture, uh, it is uh, taught more clearly and explicitly probably here in Ephesians 1 than, than any other place. But rather than getting too hung up, I want to make it as simple as possible. Really, predestination is just simply saying that that God has a plan. As God has created the world and looks to the future, he has a plan for what he wants to do. I mean, any responsible person does this. An architect, thinking about building a building, has to draw up a plan for how that building is going to go up. A military general, as that person thinks about the Incoming army needs to develop a plan for how he's going to respond or how he's going to go on the attack. A football team gets in a huddle before every single play to develop a plan for what it's going to do. This is common for all human beings to develop a plan, and it's the same for God. He has a plan that he intends to carry out and accomplish, and that's what verse 11 is pretty clearly telling us, right? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a purpose and all things in history are worked out according to how he wants it to happen. And the central part of God's plan is that he is going to redeem for himself out of sinful humanity a people for himself. He's going to save them, pursue them, redeem them, and treasure them for all eternity. And so a guy named Lorraine Bettner says this. It is one of God's perfections that he has the best possible plan and that he conducts the course of history to its appointed end and to admit that he has a plan which he carries out is to admit predestination. You you might be thinking, I don't believe in predestination. But I know what you have said probably many times is God has a plan. And you take comfort of that because you know that God has a plan for you. And when things don't make sense in your life, you fall back on what you know to be true, that God has a plan. And the doctrine of predestination is simply fleshing out this concept. God has a plan. Uh, So the central part of God's plan is, is the gospel, the saving of a people for himself and These first few verses, this whole chapter here in Ephesians 1, which we don't have time to go through, it's all about the gospel. And so I just want to take you through this fairly briefly and think about the gospel. What are the blessings of the gospel, first of all? What are the blessings of the gospel? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is how Paul starts this section. We have been blessed with these eternal blessings in the heavenly places. Well, what are those blessings? And we can see here in verse five, verse five, 
He predestined us for adoption. Adoption into the family of God. That's a blessing. We belong to a family now. We're brothers and sisters. We might be lonely and feel detached, but in the church we have a family into which we've been adopted. But in addition to adoption, there's redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. We've been purchased. We've been bought back from slavery. He's bought us, and that leads to another blessing of the gospel in verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses. All of our sins and offenses against God have been wiped out. That's, that's the gospel, right? Jesus has died on the cross to redeem us and forgive us of, of our sins and adopt us into his family. That's what the blessings are. But let's go on. Secondly, who gives these blessings? Where do they come from? Well, go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. There's an emphasis here in the beginning on the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you go down to the end of verse 6, it says that he has blessed us in the beloved that's referring to Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus is the one who shed his blood. So now we have a mention of the Son. But now go forward to verse 13. I didn't read this, but at the very end of verse 13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So do you see the flow of Paul's thought here? He's thinking about the work of the Father first, and then the work of the Son on the cross, and then the work of the Holy Spirit who comes and opens our eyes and seals the blessings of the gospel. All three persons of the Trinity is the source of this wonderful gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who gives the blessing. But now, when do we receive these blessings? What, when, where did all of this begin? Now, we have frequent mentions here of in Christ. Um, in several places, it says um, we are blessed in him. Start of verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Um, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, when you trust him, Put your faith in him. That's when you're in union with him and then a partaker of all that he has accomplished for you. But your salvation, the, the gospel blessings that belong to you didn't start at the moment that you believed, friends. It started long before that. And if you look at verse four, it tells us, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before creation, before anything existed, before you were able to do anything good or bad, before you ever thought of God, God thought of you. That's what this verse is saying. Before anything happened, God chose you and set his heart upon you. And Paul says this later in 2 Timothy. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began, in eternity past. That's, that's when the whole salvation ball got rolling. Long before you believed, God planned it. But let's go on. How? 
How did this happen? How did God come to predestine and choose you? Was it because when he looked into the future, he saw that you would be a really good person and you deserve to be chosen? Was it because God looked into the future and thought, I am really having a hard time carrying out my plan. I sure would like to have all these people on my side to help me along. I really need them. Was it because God looked into the future and thought, I can tell everybody who's really religious and moral and is going to choose me, so I'm going to choose them? Is that how this happened? No. Verse 5, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to those he foresaw would choose him? <laughs> no, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, he says it again. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's according to God's sovereign plan. That's how it works. It's not by looking ahead to see what you're going to do. It begins in God's plan. One last thing. Why? Why? There we go. Why? Why did God choose people to be saved? If you look at the very end of verse 4, leading into verse 5, and, and we see these two precious words, in love. He predestined us. In love. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith just sums all this up very well. Kind of a lengthy paragraph here, but this is good. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why God chose you. Because he loves you. This really shouldn't surprise anybody as we think of just the whole sweep of biblical history, the entire Bible story. What do we see? Why, why Abraham, a pagan living in the land of Ur, why would God choose him to be the father of Israel? Because God chose him in his eternal love. Why Jacob and not Esau? When Esau was born before Jacob and would deserve God's attention more. But why Jacob, the liar, the schemer? Because of something good in Jacob? No. Because before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon Jacob and chose him. Why Israel? To be God's people. Israel, a tiny little nation who rebelled against God through their entire existence. There were plenty of other better options in the world for God to carry out his purposes, but God sets his heart and chooses Israel. Why Paul? Paul, the persecutor of the church. Why is he the writer of so much of the New Testament and one of the most famous Christians who ever lived? Because God chose him before the foundation of the world and set his heart on him in love. And why are you today, why are you a Christian? 
Why are you a believer in Christ? And the answer is that before you could make a decision for Jesus and mess that up, God made a decision for you and set his heart on you and chose you. He loved you before there was anything in you to love. He planned this out before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes. There has never been a time when God has not loved you, Christian. I mean, think of that. Throughout all eternity past, a moment has never existed when God's heart wasn't beating in favor and commitment towards you. I mean, that's probably the best way to sum up predestination, to explain it. There has never been a time when God hasn't loved you. Someone asks you, what does predestination mean? Just say that. There has never been a time when God hasn't loved me. That's what it means. I mean, predestination can cause a, a lot of contention, and we can argue about it, but at its essence, don't, don't overlook that. This doctrine is given to us for our comfort that God's love is eternal. All right, let's go on to the next thing. Let me seek to defend predestination against some objections that might be raised. There's many objections that might come. These objections that I'm going to talk about here, they're, they're, they're legitimate. They're good questions. They're good objections. We invite you to bring your questions um, and I'm going to seek to deal with these as fairly as possible. But one common objection to this doctrine is that it is unfair. It seems unfair. Why would God save some but not all? Why doesn't God save every person? Why does he choose some and, and not others? And the, the problem, I think, with that question is that there is an underlying assumption that God is obligated to save everybody. And that's just not true. God is not obligated to save everybody. He, he does not owe salvation to you or to me. Now you might say, well, what about those who are seeking after God? Well, what does Romans say? No, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. You might say, well, what about people who have really good, pure hearts? Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, what about the people who are just trying to do the best they can, living a good, upstanding, moral life? Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of <coughs> disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all of us, in the passions of our flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. So when, when people talk about God predestining based on what he foresees in us, this is what he foresees. So on what basis would he be choosing us on, on something good in us when this is all that he sees? If two men are in jail both of them rightfully convicted of murder, and the judge pardons one, is it unfair that he didn't pardon the other when he murdered somebody and was right, rightfully found guilty and is serving his sentence? Is there any injustice in that? No. One got mercy 
and one continues to get justice. And so predestination is not unfair. God can have mercy on whom he has mercy, as Romans 9 tells us. Is it un- inconsistent? Some will say it's, it's inconsistent, and particularly with other verses in the scriptures. Um, so you know many verses that talk about God's love for the whole world. And those passages are many. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God has loved the world. And some people will say, you see, God desires to save every single person because he loves every single person in the world. But we have to understand what the word world often means in the New Testament. And to understand that, we have to review a little bit where we were in the Old Testament in this sermon series for many months where we learned that Israel was God's chosen people, that he was the nation that God sought to be his own. There was no other nation in the world that he chose to be his, and for anybody to be saved, that person would have to become a Jew. So the nation of Israel had a very unique central position in God's plan. It was just one nation. But then in the New Testament age, the gospel comes and it goes to the Gentiles and suddenly we read in the New Testament that all kinds of people can become Christians and can enter into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we learn in Revelation that every tongue, every tribe, every nation has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And so when the scripture talks about God loving the world, it doesn't necessarily mean every single person in exactly the same way. It means that God loves all kinds of people in the world. And again, Bettner says it like this, the redeemed host will be made up of people from all classes and conditions of life, of princes and peasants, of rich and poor, of bond and free, of male and female, young and old, Jew and Gentile, people of all nations and races, from north to south and from east to West. The Church of Jesus Christ is the most diverse group in the history of the world. So when the scripture talks about God's love for the world, that's what it's talking about. It's, it's his love not just for Israel anymore. It's for all nations. Well, one other objection. It discourages response, some will say. It discourages people from doing anything so in in other words the reasoning goes like this if it's all fixed if it's all predetermined if it's all been planned out then what can I do and why does it matter what I do and what if I'm not chosen if I haven't been predestined what can I do about that can that be changed and if I'm not predestined then it doesn't matter and so I'm not even going to listen to the gospel anymore and that's the way some might, might reason. But I would say that that is not an option for you, Christian, to reason in that way. It's not an option. And the reason is because Scripture demands a response from you. Scripture says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that means you have to call on the name of the Lord. Scripture says, To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you have to believe in his name. And the scripture says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of sins and cleanse you 
of all unrighteousness, but you have to confess your sins. God is sovereign, he is in control, but he is not going to confess your sins for you. He's not going to call on his own name for you. He's not going to believe for you. You are responsible, you've heard the call of God's word, and you are responsible to respond. The tricky thing in this doctrine is that the Bible says these two things. The Bible says that God has predestined people for himself, and at the same time, Jesus says this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Now, how do we put those two together? That's not easy, but the Bible says them both. God is sovereignly chosen, but don't say, oh, since he's sovereignly chosen, then I'm not going to respond. Because Jesus says, come to me and I won't cast you away. I'll welcome you in. You know, I think a lot of people, they get this picture in their mind when they hear about predestination of somebody who wants to be saved and wants their sins forgiven. And this person wants to serve Jesus and, and wants to bow the knee before their Lord, and then God says, sorry, you're not chosen. You weren't elect from before the foundation of the world, so sorry, I, I, I don't have room for you. Friends, that picture is like a square triangle. It's an impossibility. If, if you long for forgiveness, if you love Jesus, then you're chosen, you're elect. That's the sign that you're elect. It's impossible for someone to want Jesus as Savior and not be elect. The only reason that they want Jesus as Savior is because they are elect. And so if you're asking the question, how do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know? That, that question is so easy to answer. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and are you trusting him? If the answer to that is yes, then you're chosen. It's, it's just that simple. If you trust Jesus as your savior, you are elect, you've been predestined. It says it here in 1 Thessalonians, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. How do we know that? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The, the gospel came, people were convicted, and they believed, and what Paul says is that's how we know that God has chosen them. So, th th those are some, some quick responses to a few um, objections. <clears throat> I know that you probably have many more, and in our life groups tonight and this week, I encourage you to discuss those, um, but we need to move on to the last thing, which is applying predestination. <clears throat> what, what does this mean? Does this have any practical purpose in our lives, <clears throat> and I would say yes, there are three things. One, it should make you a very humble person. This doctrine of predestination removes all ground for self-righteousness. I mean, think of it. Why is it that you believe but your atheist friend doesn't? What is the final, most ultimate answer to that question? If your answer to that question is, because I did this or that, then don't you see what you're saying? It's something in me that elevates me a little bit above this person over here. It's because I believed. It's because I was wise. It's because I did the right thing, and they haven't. If they would just do what I did, they'd be okay, but they haven't done what I do. 
I did. Do you see how that's just room for you just to think a little bit more highly of yourself than this, this other person? If, it's, if there's anything in you that is the reason that God chose you, that can always lead to pride. And what does it say in Ephesians 2, <coughs> 8 and 9? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The gospel says we don't want any boasting among anybody about being a Christian because it is entirely of the grace of God. And so the person who believes in predestination the way I'm presenting it here ought to be the most humble person on earth. And it's very sad because sometimes people will come to understand these doctrines and they get very arrogant and very ugly about it. And they go around arguing with everybody and trying to convince everybody to believe like them and looking down upon people who don't understand it. And um, that is an absolute contradiction in terms, a proud person who believes in predestination. It should humble you. Secondly, it should give you assurance. It should give you great assurance to know that the plan for your salvation didn't start with you, but it started in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world. And God always finishes what he starts. If your salvation began in eternity past, that just means it's going to go into eternity future. Mere human beings don't frustrate the plan of God. We don't turn back his hand. He plans and he executes his plan exactly as he wants. Charles Spurgeon said that this doctrine of predestination is one of the softest pillows upon which a Christian can lay his head. Rest in this. Don't let it get you worked up and angry. That's not why it's given. It's given so that you would rest in the sovereign grace of God. Romans 8 says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's chosen. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody is what he means. It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Nobody. Nobody can do that. Nobody can interrupt. Nothing in all creation can interrupt God's eternal, redemptive plan for you. And the last thing <coughs> that predestination should do is it should lead you to worship like, like, like hardly any other doctrine in all of Scripture. And just point you back to our text one last time, verse 6. Um, <clears throat> right after Paul says, in love he predestined us, then in verse 6 we see, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's so that we would praise a God who is a whole lot bigger than we ever thought he was. That this is a God who is a lot more in charge than you ever imagined he would be. I mean, when I first understood this, this doctrine, it was a paradigm shift for me. It was like the time when I began to understand that, the, that God doesn't exist for me in meeting my needs. I exist for him and his glory. So I began to see that humanity and my concerns are not at the center of history. It's God and his glory that's at the center of history. And I began to see that the world doesn't revolve around me. The world revolves around God. That humanity isn't the engine moving things forward. God is the engine who's moving, who's moving things forward. We're not the ones calling the shots in this life. God is the one who is calling the shots. And as it says in Romans, it is from him, it is through him, it is to him that are all things to him be the glory, amen. And that's what this doctrine 
teaches. That's what it captures, the absolute supremacy and centrality of God in all things. And that should lead us to bow our knee and praise him with all our hearts. So I understand that you might have questions still. <clears throat> Maybe this sermon raised more questions than it answered. I hope that's not the case. <laughs> but if it is, let's talk. Uh, send me an email. Let's go have lunch. Let's have coffee and, and let's talk. And I mean that in all seriousness. I, I would love to talk with you again. Um, if, uh, if you're not in agreement with, with this, I, I hope you will understand that we still love you and we want you to be part of our community here. But let me just leave you with this. You know, as you leave today here, please don't get hung up and worried about who's chosen and who's not. <laughs> okay? Don't let that worry you because that's God's business. That's none of your business. <laughs> your responsibility is to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. It's simple. And that's what God calls you to do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Lord, you are glorious. You are great. You are mighty. You are beyond our comprehension, Lord. We acknowledge that. And we thank you that in your greatness and power, you have condescended in your love to choose us to belong to you. What a humbling thing. What an assuring thing. And Lord God, that just makes us want to worship you. And we continue to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray.